Some of you will be continuing your solitary practice, so um, something to take along. Particularly when um, talking to a group of people, different ways and means you work with the different things that happen to you when it's if they come down to some very fundamental uh, teachings that since we you know can stay there for a long time working through whatever you, you deal with um, so today talk about what we call the doors to liberation it's um, signlessness and desirelessness and Void or selflessness. These are the probably the um, these are when insight, the cultivation of insight mm-hmm. through contemplating signlessness is a characteristic of impermanence of change, which becomes radically insubstantial. Mm-hmm. The changeability, the flux. Mm-hmm groundlessness of the conditions that occupy, preoccupy, chase us around and so on, rest upon. Desirelessness is the fruition of um, recognizing the incompleteness or the unreliableness or the dukkha. Mm. It's various ways, either directly uncomfortable or awkward or just not being good enough, not enough not enough, want more, this isn't it, that continual characteristic which um, haunts us at times, where would it ever be enough, and the void is a cultivation of selflessness, or the sign of not-self or non-self, which really comes down to recognising, first of all, the ability to lack of control there is you know, bodily things happen mental things happen internally externally things just happen you don't have a lot of say over it it just comes up stuff comes up you can maneuver a little bit and you can tweak and you can manipulate and you can slow things down you can speed things up and you can maybe set the conditions where something will happen you know like you can lay out the bait and hope the mouse or the rabbit will come by. <laughs> so you can certainly do some things in that. But the the fundamental you know, lack of control and lack of possession, you can't really have anything. You can loan things and hire things and hold things for a while. <clears throat> so these are these three characteristics are things that we keep knocking on the door of our experience and our meditation practice and our non-meditation practice. And although they are in some ways um, turn turn your whole world view around, which is so based upon there being something and will get something by wanting something, having it, and there will be something, you know, which is the fundamental world view. So Turning this stuff around is very uh, takes a long time. Um, there's such a profound, um, you know, conditioning, uh, not just social, but almost biological conditioning, into into the opposite of those, into there being something secure and stable, and something to, that we can have and get the desire. 
and something we can be or get away from or you know, some place where we can have our own thing mm. and these come up so these in this contemplative life and these are always getting challenged and we get disappointed or frustrated or confused because I can't have my own way can't get things I get something a little bit not quite enough and this thing isn't quite reliable, predictable, comes up but not really when I wanted it. So these are things that we first of all see as, as irritants. And in meditation we're learning to to um, focus more fully on those in a more clear, conscious way. So they're not just fluke experiences or things that come up because of carelessness or heedlessness, but things that come up even in the clarity and, and uh, focus and aspiration of the heart. And when these are there, these signs still manifest. But when we do have the clarity and the focus and the aspiration, to some degree, you know, then these signs, we can see them in their benevolence because they have another quality to them. Um, you know, so the... Anicca, you can either see as the disappearance of signs, of characteristics, or the, or the realization of what's called the signless element. So, of course, if one is just seeing impermanence as everything is nothing reliable, this is radically destabilizing. You know, it's a psychotic experience, and psychotics are not awakened. But with the clarity and full focus, you begin to recognize that there's such a thing as a signless element. Um, and as soon as you say, what's that? Well, then you make a sign. So, <laughs> you know, because a sign is anything that your mar- mind can make a mark of, or a, a note on, or hold. And signlessness is, is one aspect of the mind not holding. So you can only say it's like that, it's like an openness um, it's not really an object anymore. It's a quality of of um, space, um, some degree of space, some sense of being able to rest in that space. And the characteristics and things that occur can flow through that. And sometimes they peter out altogether or slow down very a lot. So you can begin to contemplate, but much thinking going, what's this? How come I'm still here? How come I'm still is still present when I'm not really doing anything particularly or holding anything particularly. There's still some sense of hmm, presence. Um, and if we try to find out what that is, then you know what comes up is a thought or an idea, and that seems to jar. So perhaps one recognizes a particular tonality of mind, which I find very useful to use that. The tonality is almost like a certain, you know when you're excited, you know when you're relaxed. You know, those are tonal qualities. You know when you're tense, you know when you're bright, you know when you're dull, you know when you're resisting. You feel different tonal qualities which affect the body, the mind and the heart. And so you realize that many of these tones are afflictive, they're cramped or tight. Some tones seem to be associated with more benevolent states of mind like brightness or love or joy or rapture there's a bright zinging tone to those and signlessness is this sense of deep openness as a tone now you can't say you can't really you may detect particular signs within that such as a bodily sense or auditory sense or energetic sense um so sinuses is also something that's graduated as a kind of a relative um, lack of signs or some of the coarse signs disappear in subtler, subtler signs that we didn't even realize were signs start to manifest in a sense of awe, openness, space. And that becomes a kind of subtle sign. Um, and so as you cultivate that and you even focus on that, you can begin to... Um, contemplate the pulses or the wavering in that. And so that, in a way, thins out and empties out. But at least being able to acknowledge with the disappearance of, of, of signs, 
the, the, manif- or the experience, we say manifestation experience, is something signless. Now most of us are going to need, you know, firm signs to hold on to in order to let go of the coarse, really afflictive signs. You get, you might say there are negative and positive signs, and positive signs are things like, um, you know, steadiness, breathing in and out, um, absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of delusion, um, sense of clarity and steadiness that comes through sweeping your body, being in your body, walking up and down, um, name it, you know. And most of these, these are themed or called meditation signs. And they're in the canon anyway, these are relatively simple, they're not particularly complex. You know, you're breathing, no one knows one's breathing when they're breathing out. And you can clip different techniques onto that to help you do it or get more with it. But you've just got to recognize that the more stuff you add onto it, the more signs you're putting into the mind, and the, the lower, the, the finer the tolerances get, or the, the higher the intolerances get, you know, because you're actually working with a much more um, engineered thing. So it gets a little more, there's, there's, there's advantages and disadvantages with that. You know, that the, the meditation can eventually get so clunky that it's like, you know, when those motor scooters used to have in the 60s, so those of you who are old enough to remember them, when you had this kind of, these Vespers with about, you start off with a Vespa motorbike, you put headlights on it, and you put side lights on it, you put spotlights on it, and you put pennants on it, you put antennas on it, you put chrome on it. But it's your thing, you can only see the motorbike, the scooter underneath all this kind of stuff. That originally was designed, the idea you could see where you were going better, but eventually it just becomes the accumulation of all this stuff. Um, so one's got to be aware of that, just how many headlights do you need on your bike to see where you're going. Maybe one and a bell could be good enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, but that's really up to choice, you know, in terms of what your tastes are. Um, but one's got to be looking out for the tendency to, because there's very powerful conditioning into uh, having stuff, you know, is to not make your mind too preoccupied with the meditation techniques to the point when it misses, misses the whole deal of what we're about. We're about liberation, or moving towards signlessness. And yet, of course, if you don't have any technique or theme, the chances are that you just endlessly drift into all kinds of negative signs, which are the, the signs coming up from one's own karmic processes, thoughts, memories, so forth, and the inability to really get a reading of that or learn from that. So most of us are probably going to kind of drift in and out of those those two extremes and finding some sort of way there where eventually, just by settling into the foundation of, my, of mindfulness of the body, for example, um, you can contemplate the various kinds of bodily phenomena, even down to qualities of, of health or tension or relaxation or joy or even have how anger manifests in the body. So you can contemplate emotional patterns even from a bodily perspective. So really the kind of uh, concentration or, or one-pointedness is essential is to be able to stay within a particular foundation, whether it's body or mind feeling or mind object, you can actually stay within that, then you can get the mindfulness and clear comprehension to to study that. Uh, and so and within that, once there is that um, both that, that quality of samatha, that one's there with that, and the vipassana or the panya elements one's discerning the, the change and the flow internally and externally. Then the process begin is primed. That is, you you kind of got the stuff together, and it's a matter of attuning and flowing and staying with that and letting it move its way. And there are times when that's going to take, going to go into states of stillness or calm or you know great 
uh, vigor, and at times when we're going to be seemingly meandering around some piece of of karma, uh, trying to get a handle on frustration or um, sadness or something like that. But the process is primed, and it's a matter of, of staying, we're staying in tune with your, your basic um, foundation process and um, keep not giving up on that. And always keeping the, the, uh, the sense of the enlightenment factors, mindfulness, and then um, investigation, which are the two starters. We, we establish that quality of here I am, there's this, and an investigation, what's this about? Not, an anal- not even analysis, but just curious, involved, you know, trying to feel it out, trying to learn from it. Uh, and those will tend by themselves to keep energy present and confidence present. And that there's a sense in which um, this takes you along uh, to, to samadhi um, and to insights. Uh, and there's not really... Uh, as far as I can measure, uh, you know, a predictable course. Um, even the Buddha says some people develop more samatha first, some people develop more vipassana first. If your inclination is one way, then try to develop the other side so that you get them both kind of shunting along together. The, so that one can begin to the, allow the very qualities of, of the, the enlightenment factors um, to, in a way, hold so that there can be the disappearance of the normal signs of grasping and desire, frustration and so forth. And instead what's present is the quality of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Clear comprehension is a kind of open, spacious sense. And this is, these are, um, you know, degrees of signlessness in that they are void of particular thoughts or particular feelings or particular sensations. Um, you say that mindfulness isn't a particular thing, it's a whole, whole mode of being. And yet we do recognise a particular tone associated with mindfulness, with a certain brightness and steadiness and uprightness. Um, so, you know, you, you see how you, through the attending to particular signs of the body, the breathing, or the state of mind, or whatever it is, then, and staying with that, these enlightenment factors come up, and they, they replace the old ways of holding to be something that's more signless. And to be able to attend to that, mm. you can actually sense that. Uh, and for most people, there'll be that will be going on perhaps behind the thought process or around the breathing in and out. But this kind of sense of it's different from normal thinking or normal breathing out. There's something there, a quality of presence. And then, because particularly with karmic stuff such as thinking, it's so magnetic and um, attractive, not necessarily, des- necessarily likable, but certainly we go in there, um, that the ability to recognize both the, the changeability of that and also what's there as it changes, what remains was like a constant continuum, which is the sinus element. And what occurs, or particularly occurs in terms of the sankharas, this is very much, uh, obviously it involves a certain quality of intention. You, you, you know, you focus a particular way, but it's really about attention, which is the span, which is the sustaining span, if you like. So, attention for an ordinary, undeveloped person tends to be something that's focused 
quite locally on a particular object. You know, you see this, you read this word, you look at that person, you focus on that, you're doing this, so you attend to that. So the attention is points and clutches onto particular localised things for brief periods of time, just for as long as I, you know, that's required into the next thing. The attention is a jumpy thing and a very localising thing. But to develop sinuses, you have to make attention wide, um, broad. It's pushing back the restlessness and the dullness and so forth that tend to make attention flicker, blot out, and jump a lot. Very actually broadening attention. So you can do exercises that just specifically work around broadening your attention span. So obviously, broadening it in time, going to the end of a thought. So you lengthen your attention over the whole thought process or the whole sensation process. Um, length in terms of time. You can also get a certain dimensional quality to it. So you can do this even with your, your eyes open, just focusing on the whole of the visual field and learning how that directly affects the mind. You kind of you, the eyes are so closely connected to the mind. If you open that right up, you get the sense of attention. Attention widens. And when it's a very wide field, you can't really detect particular localised phenomena within it. You know, things tend to blur. And naturally, attention will want to contract onto a particular specific thing. Let's get on with it. Do, I can't quite get this. So there's actually practising like that. Um, and this is where some of the difficulties around concentration occur. Because concentration to an untrained person is very much a matter of getting your attention to localise on a particular point and hold it till you get the good bit. Like that. But you notice in the Buddha's teaching that the concentration isn't something you do, it's something that happens, it arrives through particular dynamic of skills. Holding something, feeling it out, sensing it, vitaka vichara. You know, certainly staying with that, but in a much more dynamic way, much more what investigative way, pointing towards the thought or the breath or the sensation, and just how does it feel? What's it about? What does it, what's it seem like? So there's a lot more space in that, uh, and this is the the engine, if you like. This particular dynamic is the engine. It brings up the sense of brightness and joy and uh, satisfactoriness, ease, where the mind begins to settle from a fretful, um, grasping state to something much more soft and firm. This is samadhi. So samadhi isn't something you do, it's something that happens as a result of something that isn't quite what we imagine concentration to be from an ordinary person's language uh, bank. Much more like sense of getting deeply composed around what you're with and what you're doing. So attention needs to be developed, not necessarily tightened or grasped, but thoroughly developed. So it can be wide, it can be broad, it can be sharp, it can be fine. And so just working around that. And when we're doing very simple practices, like just being present or walking, then there's a lot of opportunities to just work with how we attend, rather than just kind of trying to, you know, you know, just experiment. How do I tend? What do I assume they're supposed to be doing when I'm walking up and down? And again, if you look in the canon, it doesn't just says you know you're walking up and down. So, ugh, you know, what's that? Doesn't sound like very much, does it? it sound like very good meditation. Walk up and down. Know you're walking up and down. And so most people don't ink in all kinds of details on that. If you like, you know, put as many 
headlights on the bike as you like, if it helps. But then really just knowing this is what a body feels like when it walks up and down. Um, This is what it feels like to walk through space. This is how the body knows it's walking through space. This is what how sensations occur. Just something like that. Like, you know, where your attention is not specific any more than just to, to be with walking up and down and keep referring everything that occurs to the bodily sense of that. So, you know, thoughts may come up and we keep walking through that, recognizing the energy of the thought process as it happens. The kind of tangle of that, just steadying by referring that to this steady process of walking along, walking backwards, forwards, forwards, backwards, neither, both, and so forth. That's a, that's as detailed as you can get. Because there is an effect that occurs if you're just de- doing that, not attending to the the uh, afflictive process. Just just keep attending to the theme of walking. The quality of steadiness has its own effects. Whereas if you're too tight, right, trying to stop this and make that happen and get to this, and you know, then attention doesn't change out of the way of the ordinary person. It becomes just like anybody else who's getting angry in a traffic jam. You get meditation rage instead of road rage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing really developed about it because attention hasn't been developed. The, the patience and the steadying and the kindness to just keep you know, referring back to the tangle from a place of walking, standing, sitting, breathing, just keep referring back to it. Because the sinus element is there, and it has a, uh, a benevolent and liberating aspect. It doesn't dismiss signs, it just subsumes them. Characteristic of wanting, hankering, is it fretful, um, sense, like a volitional sense. You know. So the volitional sense arises in the heart or in the affective mind, a kind of unsteady, unfulfilled sense. That's, that's where it begins, you know, unsteady, unfulfilled sense of that. And and it arises, and then where it will tend to express itself is in the, the head, where we do something. The head is the doing sense, it tells us what to do and how to do it. So the volition is queasy, unsatisfied, wobble arises in one place, and if it's expressed in a series of images, thoughts, commands, injunctions, do this, don't do this, try to do this, get on with that, make it like this, make it like that, shut up, stop, stop thinking about it now, right, well, I won't think anymore, shut up, stop thinking, and so forth. So, you know, it's, so then it's, it's going like that, and you can feel how this volitional quality becomes, in the expression of it, can be very, very agitating. Because yeah. it tends to both be um, sharp in its manner, rough-edged in its manner, and after all, it gets, it gets fed up after a while with you not coming up with the stuff, so it starts to put a little bit of snide and snipe into the volitional commandment. Why don't you hurry up and get it together? <laughs> you know, or when am I going to get this? Or then it gets sad. I, I can't, I'm trying, I just can't. Another go, there you go again. And it gets angry. So it goes into these, because it can't do it. 
It can't, the expression of volition can't fulfill what volition actually wants. It wants to be in a place where there's no more wanting, where you feel buoyant and full. So normally, of course, our volitional drives take us to places that make us feel fairly buoyant if we follow it, you know, the nice walk, the interesting book, the uh, pleasant company, the satisfying meal, and so forth. <laughs> Great, you know, lovely. I mean, if, we, if it was like that, wonderful, let's just do it. Um, but we do recognize it, it's kind of pretty fleeting, and, and so that's not quite enough, not, not big enough for me. I want it all. <laughs> now. But it does give you a, a clue. You, see, you, remember, you think of something, what, what would the expression of what you want really be like? You distill it down. You know, you know, however unallowable it is. And... Uh, you think you're in that place of feeling really complete and full and, and bright and uh, no stress and uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is, that place. And this is um, the kind of this is what volition is trying to get to, but it doesn't know how to do it because it's going to the wrong place, yeah. going to the do it place rather than the be it place. And you, just something when you bring up and reflect upon the deepest wish, when you distill it all down, and linger in that, let it be warm, bright, clear, whatever it is, and sort of you know push away the jargon around it, free, full, no stress, no pain. Push away all the, all the kind of complexities. Just get down to that. How that feels. You feel a particular tone there, the uplifted tone, completion. And this is a very useful reference. The tonality of that, almost contemplating the desireless element. So obviously, um, you know. The, un, the unsatisfactoriness of, the, of desire, of volitional push, is one side of it, of this characteristic. Uh, we realize, you know, you can think all you like, and you still don't get to that place of complete, utter clarity. You, know, you can think, they have those brilliant teachings and philosophies, and still there's that sense of, yeah, but, but now what goes on? And you can have the biggest blackberry pie in the world, and still a the cream would have been. Right? <laughs> so you realise the, the the thinking process and even the perceptual process, which brings up these kind of luscious meanings of um, you know, sensuality or you know, even you know, non-sensual things, samadhi, you know, so forth. It's not intrinsically satisfying. It gets a good way there, but it doesn't utterly satisfy. Because the perceptions can't do that. It's not their job. They can't do that. So even fine material forms of jhana are still held within the realm they perceive their perceptions, the particular feelings and perceptions to them. They don't actually go anywhere. They go to that, and then, you know, it's like you're listening to an orchestra and they strike the last note. (laughs) When's the last note ever going to (laughs) come? Because you get these kind of. And it goes on and on and on. (laughs) 
<laughs> there isn't a last note. <laughs> There's only a note that's saying this is really it, but it isn't. So when you begin to sense this, you feel, you know, how many beautiful, amazing sights, how many fantastic scenes, how many glorious sunsets, how many wonderful forests can there be till you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there's this quality of nibbita, which means you're just not believing in it anymore. And nibbida, which sounds so kind of grim, you know, like fed up, rejected, repelled, disgusted, revolted, nauseated, and so forth. <laughs> uh, depending on, the, I think, the coloration in the translator's <coughs> mind. <laughs> Uh, what what level they were in, <laughs> or where their particular inclinations are, um, but certainly there can be this kind of profound sense of turning away, which is the essential bit of it. One does not it's nit binditu binding is kind of digging into, going into nibindi. You don't go into anymore. It's kind of, um, but with that, actually, is the quality of desireless element. Desireless element is the experience of fulfillment. And because we can't get that in a particular thing or a perception or a sensation, you know, no early person doesn't sense there is an element like that. But in the Attending to that is like attending just to the the bright the tone, the tonality of fulfillment, what it would be like, what your body would feel like. So, you know, we can sitting is even imagining something a very beautiful place to be, warm, sunny, bright, this kind of wash. And this is cheating a bit actually, but you know, it's just always we're reminding that you don't have to go anywhere, actually. You can do it right now. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think we've all been in, in very beautiful places, and it's wonderful the first day, and pretty good the second day, and really okay the third day, and quite nice the fourth day, and fifth day. <laughs> you know, the scene didn't change at all, but the tone gradually dropped. And the tonality is a really important thing. So we get that. We can get that with pity, and sukha, the jhana factors. Or we can get that. We just help us to remind us of that quality. Or even just the sense of loving kindness, <laughs> compassion. Things where you get the sense of really being fully there in a benevolent way. We don't want anything. We're just giving and listening and you know, the heart is fully extended. Um, and it's that extension of the heart that is the fulfillment of the heart. It's not, it's not you know, pushing it where it comes, actually fulfilling it. It's really important to cultivate in meditation and in non-meditation, within a theme and apart from a theme, the fulfillment of the heart. And realizing it's not going to come from some external source, but come from really lifting yourself into what you're doing, where you are, who you're with, in your own body. You're really lifting yourself into it. This is the most important thing, you know, because it just is. And there's a lot of giving in that. Um, so the meditation is very simple. And the simplicity can be helpful in, in because the heart is quite a simple thing. Sense of just spreading heartfulness through the whole body, wishing it well, or just you know being taking an interest, care in certainly if you're practicing anapanasati then. Second tetra is really about this, about going from it's almost like admiring and enjoying 
and opening up to and delighting in um, this subtle rhythmic experience. Because intention, volition has been worked on. It's no longer just a kind of rather crude grab it or push it away thing. It's not such a do it thing, it's a need it, massage it, work with it, attend to it, cherish it. It's those kinds of volitional um, exercises need to be done and which should not really miss any opportunity that's available to do that internally, externally, walking, standing, sitting, eating the meal or whatever. Caring in what one's doing. It's a loving, heartful life. So, you know, many people have difficulties because we are getting so functional and so much onto the do-it bit and sometimes even rather nervous or mistrustful about extending the heart, opening the heart, frightened, which are a bit too sensitive. We might get overwhelmed, we feel awkward about that. The sign of, of, but so intention has to be work with. We have days and days and years and years of doing that. Can I come from a slightly more, you know, generous place, put it that way, and trusting place with myself and with others? The Third is the quality of um, sunyata, void, which is to do with the self, both as mine and I am, and myself. Mine is the desire, isn't it? Holding on to something is mine. When they say this is mine, it's got a certain sort of <laughs> grabbiness comes up in the mind as he uses the word. <laughs> mine. <laughs> and this I am. <laughs> a certain sort of. And this is myself, which actually doesn't really work <laughs> for me particularly. But that's the so the this I am is is conceit, which is conceiving and a certain kind of you know holding there, a certain kind of solidification, and a view is something that evolves from that. You know, this is myself. This 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 thing here is what I'm. This whatever it is, whether it's a mental sign or a bodily sign or whatever. Um, so when we approach the sign of self-characteristic as it's experienced and some of those extremely deeply etched aren't they this is definitely mine not yours you, know. um, you see it, that's what it requires as if it's mine it's because it's not yours yeah. so if it's something we don't know whose it is I don't say it's mine or yours it's just there so this is my carpet if you can't tread on it if it's not mine, it's not yours, it's just there's a carpet. Nothing really happens with the carpet. Uh, as soon as the it's not your carpet comes in, and the so either those will occur. So the self characteristic occurs either through mine or not yours, but it always involves both. If it's not yours, it must be mine. Or one of my people. Mm. And you can feel that in that characteristic gets embedded onto a particular object, and the object requires a kind of heightened intensity. So, you know, food, shared food, 
shared places, shared dwellings, communal property, mine, yours, what, my space. Yes, you keep away. Or you can only come in if I say so. Um, and so, but is, it, is it actually that way? Can that statement be really substantiated by the thing? So, well, actually, it can't. I call it mine, but it's just what it is. Carpet is just there. Buying in a shop didn't, you know, make it necessarily mine as such. So that kind of process. And once you begin to um, let go around that, on many levels, carpets are relatively easy. <laughs> but uh, opinions and uh, space and bodies and so forth, the closer it comes to things that are more continually held as mind, and the more the, the stakes go up and the tension rises around that. Then how tense it is. Mm. Something is mine. And how automatically it's going to set up conflict with something other than mine. You, them. The fear, the mistrust, the insecurity, the, you know, won't go my way if it's not mine, um, and so on. But, you know, contemplating, but that feeling of mind, the tone of it, is that really the way you want it to go? Is that really taking you into where you want to be? The, so if we look at, if we contemplate something that hasn't got many much stake on it, an external object, for example. So, you know, something that's not mine, not in, don't take me interest. I'm looking at things that are, are, are not mine or yours or anybody's, the tree, wall, um, just as it is. And seeing you know, the essential quality of that. Just that. This is a process called non atamayata. We don't make anything of it. So first of all, it's just what? White space. And you realize after a while, well, whiteness is not the actual essence of it. Solidity. And then solidity is something that's shared by the other things. So is it really solid or white or even a wall? So you can gradually distill or you can linger on some of these meanings, just the sense of whiteness itself um, and what that feels like or the sense of solidity and what that feels like. And so that you're really distilling particular perceptions and dwelling upon them, and they gradually begin to empty out. Solidity, when you feel it, is... Your mind slips through it, because solidity actually isn't solid. It's something that wavers and fluxes and is associated with the bodily characteristics. So it does when we recognize the quality of signlessness and we work with that, then the mindness around things is challenged. It can't be mine if it isn't solid. And many things are assumed to have, so not just physical things, but material and immaterial things like assumptions, views, standards, values, states of mind are held to be solid, continuing and therefore I rely upon them qualities of atmosphere silences it's not noisy 
um, and so on. And so that the holding on to those, the insecurity around that, comes from not having developed uh, proper attention, where you actually, you know, I can, I can get my mind around that. I don't like it, but I can get, you know, get around that, and eventually the not liking can disappear. The heart can open up and get past the desire and aversion of it. My stone saw meditations, last vasa, sitting and opening up the sound of people sawing stone outside my kuta's. The sound doing. It would do anything. There's no intent to it at all. The mind contract, opening it up. There's no particular sign to it, and so you know you can, important. You can only redevelop this quality of void through the other two. They all go hand in hand. But if it's an ability to acknowledge the mind experience, not to not have it, to acknowledge it, and to see what it's trying to do and to see its failure in doing that. What is, what is mind trying to do? Why, why does it happen so much? Well, I've been told since probably day three, day one of practice we were told about Nietzsche, day two we were told about pain, day three we were told about letting go of self and all that. How come we're still doing it? We, why is it so difficult to learn? Yeah. It's certainly not a process that you have a lot of control over. That's exactly why itself is not self. Because you can't say, let me not have one. <laughs> you can't control that which seems to be about controlling things. It just comes up and controls things whether you want them to or not. How can I stop being so controlling? Means you can try and control control. You can't control control. So controlling keeps coming up. So that's not the way, is it? You know? trying to stop being a controlling person. Why do I want to control is more, what's that about? And I guess, you know, what self is really about is a sense of wholeness. When we look into what it really like to be, say, there's a sort of sense of complete, no, no nagging bits, no loose ends, no... You know, like to, you know, sometimes we can get that with things we delight in, that feeling of being completely unified in it. We delight in that. It's a feeling of completion. Changes, of course. And that's, you know, you just kind of contemplate. You find your own words for that. What, what, do you, what is mine about? What is mine and me about? What does it feel like when you say, really, this is what exactly what I am. At that moment, you feel very kind of enlarged and empowered, and, and then oh, it's not. <laughs> and then rather embarrassed. <laughs> Why does that inflation feel so good <laughs> for a moment? Because you know? it's it's a kind of an estimate of what it would be like to feel, you know, complete whole. This is why we keep doing it. So as much as we tut tut about it, we find surreptitious ways of doing it. Um, we still do it because this is because contact is not really understood. How can you you realise? Well, they come down to it. I must be in here because there's things happening to me. So I must be the thing that things happen to, mustn't it? So thoughts happen to me, feelings happen to me, sensations happen to me. So you know, as long as that's happening, then I must be the bit that things happen to and there's this other stuff out there that does things. So sometimes I'm me and there's my mind is doing things to me. And I'm trying to get it out and control it and stop it. 
And sometimes it's my body's doing things to me. I try to sort it out and calm it down. And sometimes it's external situations are doing things to me. So I shut my door or close my eyes or earplugs or run away or whatever. You know. But there's always something's happening to me. And so when we follow this through, we do it, uh, you know, an incredibly diligent job in, in trying to avoid things happening to me. You know. Sit alone in the forest, in the dark, no candles, no light, quiet, silent. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen. Ooh, ow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> thought or feeling or sensation comes up and does something to me. I'm affected again. I don't want to be affected because the heart is not developed. Can't handle effects. Haven't got a loving enough heart. So when we when we come out, perhaps of being so heightened and intense about me and getting myself together and my trip and my meditation, me realizing deathlessness or me ceasing or me realizing I'm not here at all, whatever permutation it takes, <laughs> and stop being so you know, utterly captured by this mind, me, myself, my non-self experience. And so actually, what is contact about? It's ordinary contact. Remember, these meditations are really simple, walking up and down. Thousands of times a day, contact happens. Have you ever really comprehended it? Have you really not just taken the obvious... Um, interpretations has happened to you, just contemplated it. Where is this contact happening? Who did it happen to? Where is it happening? Where is that? Who does it happen to? What is it? Rather than this kind of boring thing, no, this is that simple thing like walking. It's certainly something happens. There's a resonance there. But if you really comprehend and look into that, you realise, well, it's not exactly a thing itself. It's a whole event, isn't it? It's an event flow, certain resonances and feelings and sensations. Um, and then, you know, with that comes the sense of being here, this happening to me. If you really... Just focus and don't be too fussy about content. Just make something that's quite ordinary. Do it again and again and again. Walking. Particularly these external physical things are much easier to do. Because the mind tends to become whatever it contacts. But the physical thing, where is it? We may immediately say, well, it's happening in my feet. But if you sense the, the quality of the sensation and feeling for a moment, it's just global. You know, and then it's localised, that's the foot. Mm. The first thing is just this kind of flush of being affected. And then, so, okay. Happens like that. It's two kinds of contact. One is just the basic impression, very immediate, and the second is the interpretation of that. And this happens very quickly. I remember the story of a people are out bush somewhere, not not a bush, not an English bush, but an Australian or American bush, you know, like wildland, and they're in their camper van, <laughs> not in a inside a tree. Uh, in a camper van, there's a woman and a couple of husband and a couple of kids or something. And they were sitting in the back of it. It's got these windows, and then the the, um, the kids were sitting on one side, and the mother was sitting on the other side. And she was sitting there. And the next thing she knew, she jumped up and grabbed the kid and thrown him on the floor. And she, and then for a second, she saw the snake yeah, coming through the window. But before she'd actually seen, she'd seen it. 
It's before she actually knew what she'd seen. She immediately got the impression, danger, and reacted, and then she saw it. Very interesting. There's a different, you know, which you often only get in these very heightened moments when you suddenly react, and then you find out, you know, quarter of a second later or whatever it is what it was. That's what contact is. So first of all, it's just global. And you realize for a body it has to be that way. Because contact for a body is very much about life and death. And you don't want to hang around and figure out, I wonder which direction that tiger's coming from, <laughs> what kind of teeth he's got. You know, and whether he's in a good mood or not. You know, you want to be out of there as quick as possible. So, <laughs> you know, danger. Don't hang around and then figure it out later. And you see animals do this all the time. So that's, we're wired exactly the same way. So you can notice that actually contact doesn't happen with a sense of me and other, an object and a subject. It generates an object and a subject that comes after, but actually in contact is just that. Now, we're doing this in a sort of contemporary way, so you don't have to be tigers or people jumping on you or anything, but keeping that sense of it, you really contemplate, content doesn't happen to anybody. Fear of contact you know, worrying about it, doing, trying to do something about it, all that is very much held in a sensitive way. So if we contemplate just simple things like sensations, they're flux. The fact that they change means that the, some of the um, tensions around it go down, you're able to just contemplate the feeling, the disagreeable feeling in the in that seems to be in the body. Where is it? Is it in your leg? Is it in your mind? Where is it? You know. There's just this flush of the feeling and then the mind knows, oh that sensation in my leg, I can do something about it. Just the flush of the feeling. When it's not something that's too you know, you can actually manage to be with, or the pleasure, it is wash of pleasure. Um, so there is actually essentially a wholeness to experience as it happens. Um, that means that the whole issue of self, non-self, me, you, is not on the agenda. It's void. It doesn't need to be calibrated. It's just you know, not a going concern, it's just this. The quality of, of void or sinus, uh, void deliverance, is this sense of completion because when it is whole, there is the, the sense of completion. Work well, in other ways, you know, in any situation, you know, can it be right now other than as it is? Is there something holding us back? Is there something that I'm kind of holding myself against till it goes away? Is there something that I'm secretly kind of wanting to get out to? You know, the pain of that. You because know, the wholeness is outside or somewhere else where I could be. And how many times, millions of times, do we do that? For a moment and it evaporates. Now when we use meditation uh, practices and themes and so forth, we can get a chance to examine some of these things, be with some of these things. Um, sometimes the process is one which actually pushes us. You know, as the process gets primed, it kind of starts to nudge us along out of our held position because it just will not behave um, and it will not give us a local place to be it will not give us a piece of territory and we keep trying to stake out some place 
and it still won't happen. And we think, another five, ten years I could get this state down. Well, I tell you, it won't happen. (laughs) But there can be, we can get the sense of, you know, the, the, the steadiness, the heartfulness, the wholeness, that you know, is, is our aspiration uh, through contemplating these things. Contemplating the signless element, the void element, the non-self element, the desireless element, element that has no hankering in it, the fulfillment element. Intention, attention and contact have to be thoroughly understood. These are the mainsprings of the conditioning process. <laughs>